Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Join host Dan Ray, BU Law alum and WBC 1030 radio host in Boston for this edition of the BU Law Podcast. Well, welcome to this edition of the BU Law Podcast. I am the aforementioned Dan Ray, your host. I'm also an attorney here in Massachusetts, a Boston University Law School alumnus, and also a longtime broadcast journalist at WBZ Television, and now the host of Nightside on WBZ Radio from 8 to midnight, Monday through Friday, where we deal with all sorts of issues, politics, uh, economics, current events, and also occasionally legal issues. I've also, of course, covered countless court cases uh, in local, state, and uh, national courtrooms, and uh, as I mentioned, have my own radio talk show now, Monday through Friday on WBZ Radio, 10.30 a.m. on the dial. Our guest today is an expert on constitutional law, an area of the law that I think most of us have some understanding of, constitutional law theory and interpretation. Professor James Fleming is the Honorable Frank R. Kennison, Distinguished Scholar in Law at Boston University. He's also the author of several books and numerous articles in law reviews. Welcome, Professor Fleming. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Professor, your latest book, which you co-authored with uh, Sotirios Barber, uh, who teaches at the University of Notre Dame, is entitled Constitutional Interpretation, The Basic Questions. Any of us who have suffered, studied, uh, and maybe suffered, but studied constitutional law uh, certainly understands uh, that concept. There are so many basic questions. What are, in your opinion, uh, the, the basic questions of constitutional interpretation? Well, we argue that a lot of disputes about constitutional interpretation reflect different answers to three basic questions about the Constitution. First, what is the Constitution? Is it simply a text, or does it also include underlying principles presupposed by the text? The second question we distinguish is who may authoritatively interpret the Constitution? Is it the Supreme Court exclusively? Or does each coordinate branch of the national government have responsibilities to interpret the Constitution initially, but with the Supreme Court being the ultimate interpreter? The third question is, how is the Constitution to be interpreted? And this question encompasses competing approaches to how to interpret the Constitution. Now, in the book, we focus on the what and the how, which are interrelated. Now... Anyone, of course, who is familiar with the uh, the con- the conversation about the constitutional uh, about the Constitution uh, these days knows about the uh, uh, the originalists, uh, the the people who sort of want to go right to the document and uh, and interpret the document in the context of uh, when it was written. Uh, the words mean what they mean, and and maybe little more. And then, of course, you have other folks who look at it sort of as an evolving paradigm, an evolving document. Your view of it is somewhat different than even even both of those views, which are considered, I guess, uh, the, uh, the the point-counterpoint of constitutional argument today. Yes. Um, now, uh, this dispute goes to the question we call, what is the Constitution? Um, and uh, the originalist uh, answer to the question is basically, well, the Constitution is like a code of detailed historical rules. Um, and uh, the proponents of the Constitution as evolving or a living Constitution reject that view. Now, we think of the Constitution as a charter of abstract moral 
commitments. Um, and let me just uh, draw a distinction between our view and the originalist view. Um, if you think the Constitution is a code of detailed historical rules, like the uh, originalists do, that's going to affect how you interpret language like Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. Uh, you'll think that this language codifies detailed historical understandings as of 1791 when the First Amendment was ratified. Um, but if you conceive the Constitution as a charter of abstract moral commitments, you'll view that language, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech, as committing us to an abstract principle of freedom of speech. And so you'll argue, as we do, that to interpret those words, we have to elaborate the meaning of that commitment in relationship to our form of constitutional self-government. And you'll have to make a lot of moral and philosophic choices in being faithful to that commitment to freedom of speech. Well, when you say, for example, freedom of speech, clearly the um, uh, the founders and uh, uh, the men uh, who wrote the Constitution, uh, they have no concept of uh, the way in which a speech is exercised today. Uh, they, they certainly did not know about if someone told them that You'd be you and I would be talking about a radio interview. They they would have no idea what radio was. Marconi hadn't been born yet. Uh, television, the internet, and and all of that uh, that all changes the circumstances in which free speech is exercised. But it seems to me that fundamentally the concept of free speech remains the same from 1791 to today. Well, it, but you're putting it that way as a concept of freedom of speech. Um, basically, admits that it's an abstract commitment. Uh, we can't just do historical research concerning what was in the minds of historical framers or ratifiers in order to decide our questions today. We can't just look and see what was the original public meaning of freedom of speech as expressed in the statutes of the American colonies uh, as of 1791. You're going to have to make judgments about what freedom of speech means in our form of government and in our circumstances today. And so our approach, uh, which we call a philosophic approach, calls for openly granting that and making those decisions, which are unavoidable, whereas the uh, originalists always begin by saying that they're not going to be making any moral and philosophic choices in constitutional interpretation they're just going to be doing research into the concrete original meaning of the words freedom of speech in 1791. We argue that that approach won't uh, get you to solutions to our problems today, and that approach is going to inevitably smuggle moral and philosophic choices into constitutional interpretation in the guise of simply doing historical research concerning the original meaning of the words freedom of speech. Who, um, he, who, in your opinion, today is is qualified to interpret the Constitution? Clearly, the um, uh, the government is set up uh, that uh, the president proposes laws, Congress enacts them, and uh, with judicial review, uh, we know that the judges have often sort of uh, in, interpreted whether or not laws are, are constitutional. It's by the by virtue of the question, I assume that. Uh, that you think that more people than just judges sitting in black robes should interpret the Constitution? Yes. Well, this is one of the fu basic questions we distinguish. Uh, who may authoritatively interpret the Constitution? Now, on court-centered views, which I think are increasingly uh, dominant today, um, 
we t- uh, people tend to think, well, interpretation of the Constitution is the province of courts. Um, and that uh, uh, leads to a very court-centered view and leads to um, a kind of a haughty dismissal of claims by the President or Congress to have engaged in conscientious constitutional interpretation before taking actions. Um, if you take a more traditional departmentalist view, you'll argue that each branch of the national government has obligations initially to interpret the Constitution um, and not to take actions unless uh, he or she has uh, deliberated conscientiously on what the Constitution requires of them. And if you take that departmentalist view and you presuppose that, say, the President and Congress have engaged in conscientious constitutional interpretation, you may be more willing to accord deference to their judgments about what the Constitution means. One of the trademarks of the Rehnquist and Roberts courts is to take an increasingly court-centered view and to insist on courts having the final say on just about all questions of constitutional interpretation and according less deference to presidents uh, or congresses concerning what the Constitution requires of them. Well, how would the, the Rehnquist um, or the Roberts view differ from the Warren Court view? I mean, the Warren Court uh, broke, uh, I think, many more grounds uh, than either the Rehnquist or the Roberts Court. And I think that ultimately the the, the school of thought that uh, that is, is uh, primary today is that ultimately in this, this three-ringed merry-go-round between the, the president, uh, the, the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary, uh, that ultimately the, the ultimate word rests with the judiciary, which by definition is a court-centered view. Well, that is, as I said, increasingly the view today. Um, I think the Roberts Court and the Rehnquist Court uh, have been more court-centered than the Warren Court and have is been that, more is that because be, on having the last yeah. word. Let me give an example. No, but my question, just real quickly, is that because they're more precedent-oriented? Uh, no, it's. let me give an example to illustrate what I mean by that. Sure. Um, during the time of the Warren Court, there was a view that uh, when it comes to uh, enforcing our commitments to federalism, there was a view that uh, the primary protections for federalism in our constitutional system are inherent in the national political processes, that states as states are adequately represented through the way we elect senators and representatives in Congress. And so when there's a challenge to Congress as having exceeded its federal powers in such a way as to encroach on state sovereignties, the Warren Court was deferential. They were not aggressive in in insisting, no, we are the primary enforcers of federalism. By contrast, the Rehnquist Court said, no, we, the court, are the primary enforcers of federalism. We are going to have the last word about what our commitments to federalism entail for limitations on congressional power. Um, so that would be one example. There, another example I would give would be that the Warren Court believed that Congress shared with the court in the responsibility to enforce the provisions of the 14th Amendment, our commitments to equal protection, our commitments to 
uh, due process and the like. And the Warren Court said that if uh, that that its own interpretations uh, were a floor, that Congress, if it wished to be more protective of certain civil rights, uh, it had authority to do so. But the Rehnquist Court has uh, taken a much narrower view in insisting that, no, the Constitution is what the court says, and the Congress may not be more protective of individual liberties than uh, the court has interpreted the Constitution to require. This has played out dramatically in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act um, uh, 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 in the last decade. So those would be two primary examples where the Warren Court was less court-centered and insistent upon itself having the final say about what the Constitution means than the Rehnquist Court and Roberts Court. Well, I, I understand your point. Uh, at, the, at the same time, certainly, if you were to put on a spectrum uh, courts, uh, you know, various Supreme Court errors uh, uh, on, the, on the concept of activism, uh, the, the Warren Court would be probably the most active. Uh, I disagree. The- uh, there have been a number of books written in the last decade with titles like the Rehnquist Court, the most activist court in history. And I think well, how, been, how would you compare the? And I don't want to argue with, with right. you because I'm sure you know it more than I do. But when you think about Brown versus Education, you think about all of the uh, uh, the, the the criminal uh, d- rights to criminal defendants that the Warren Court broke ground on. Um, uh, I, I can't think of many other any cases under the Rehnquist Court uh, which changed the way. Uh, the law is applied in this country more than some of the decisions, and obviously Brown versus versus Board of Education is foremost in my mind. Okay. Well, um, let me say something about activism versus restraint. I actually don't find these notions that helpful in thinking about competing approaches to constitutional interpretation. Okay. But there have been quantitative studies that have shown that the Rehnquist Court is less deferential to Congress than the Warren Court was. There have been studies that have shown that the Rehnquist Court was more aggressive in striking down laws passed by Congress as being unconstitutional than had uh, the Warren Court uh, been. Um, I think that uh, the perception and the rhetoric is, well, the Warren Court was a, quote, activist court, and the claim is that uh, the Rehnquist Court or the Roberts Court uh, believe in judicial deference to the political process. I'm saying that is rhetoric. Uh, that's propaganda that is not borne out in the actual results of Supreme Court declarations of federal laws as being unconstitutional. Okay. Again, not to be argumentative, but I can't think of any decision uh, in the Rehnquist Court with which is as far-reaching uh, as as fundamentally um, fundamentally impacts American society uh, than Brown versus Board of Education, for example. Okay. Well, but again, in response to that, I would say that um, everybody today now believes Brown was rightly decided. That is, it's not the case that this was somehow that this remains a controversial decision that is still uh, resisted. Um, 
and uh, also I'm which making which makes a, it all the, all the more significant, right. I think. And I'm making a larger point, not about particular one particular symbolic decision. Okay, I'm making a larger point about the corpus of the Supreme Court's uh, jurisprudence, and also about the Rehnquist Court and Roberts Court's conceptions of who uh, may authoritatively interpret the Constitution. I'm are, saying are they're there, more imperialistic in those senses, even if you can pick out Brown as being a more dramatic instance of a court striking down a law. Okay. Uh, and, and then there are other cases which we might get into. My guest is um, uh, Professor James Fleming. He's the author, along with... Um, Soto Rios, a barber of Notre Dame University, uh, of, of a new uh, a text published in 2007, but available today, very interesting uh, text, Constitutional Interpretation of the Basic Questions. I'm going to take a quick break. When we get back, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, with uh, Professor Fleming, uh, some recent court decisions uh, that uh, he might believe have been wrongly uh, decided uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court. Do stay with us. We'll be back uh, just in a few moments. Located in Boston and steeped in 138 years of rich tradition, BU Law is number one in teaching quality according to Leiter Law School rankings and number three in the nation for best professors according to Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872 and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. Now back to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray, a lawyer, a veteran Boston broadcast journalist, and BU Law alum. Welcome back to this edition of the Boston University School of Law podcast. I'm your host, Dan Ray. Our topic today is constitutional interpretation with author and uh, most importantly, Boston University Law School professor uh, James Fleming. Uh, Could you give um, our listeners, Professor Fleming, an example of some uh, recent Supreme Court decisions uh, that have interpreted the Constitution, uh, in your opinion, wrongly? Okay. Well, let me give um, the example of Bowers versus Hardwick, and I want to give this example because it is a decision that the Supreme Court itself, 17 years later, came to view as wrongly decided and did reverse it. Bowers versus Hardwick held that the constitutional protections of liberty in the Due Process Clause did not extend to protecting a right of gays and lesbians to intimate sexual association. The court said that the precedents protecting the right of heterosexuals to uh, uh, sexual privacy or sexual autonomy did not have any extension to gays and lesbians. Um, And this was a decision that was uh, defended by conservatives and originalists, but was widely attacked uh, in uh, the legal academy as well as in journalism. And then certain, um, uh, and then uh, 17 years later in Lawrence versus Texas, uh, the Supreme Court overruled that case. Uh, 
And it interpreted the precedents uh, that Bowers had said had no application to gays and lesbians. It interpreted those precedents as expressing more abstract commitments to personal liberty than Bowers had interpreted them to be. And the court held that those commitments to personal liberty extended to rights for gays and lesbians to intimate sexual association by analogy to the rights to intimate sexual association that uh, uh, heterosexuals had. Uh, so that would be um, a good example. And now, I now, quick, because, quick, question, yes. yeah, quick question, if I could, on that. I'm, I'm curious, and you, you may not know this uh, off the top of your head, and if you don't, that's fine. I wonder if there was any individual justice. I'm thinking about specifically maybe Anthony Kennedy, who over that period of time might have changed his view uh, and may have voted with the majority in both cases. Okay. Well, curiously, after Bowers versus Hardwick, Justice Powell, which was a five to four decision, Justice Powell, who was in the five to four majority, came out and said in some speeches that he had made a mistake and he had come to view the decision as wrongly decided. Now, Powell um, then uh, retired from the court um, and um, ultimately was replaced by Kennedy. Um, now, I don't see Kennedy himself as having a change of heart. I mean, he hadn't been with the majority in Bowers. He wasn't on the court. Um, and Kennedy wrote uh, the Supreme Court decision in Romers versus Evans, an, uh, an earlier decision involving gay rights, uh, and he upheld gay rights in that decision. Uh, and so, to some extent, his majority opinion in Lawrence versus Texas was an extension and application of his own earlier views expressed in Romer versus Evans. Romer had taken the view that uh, discrimination against gays and lesbians reflected animus against a politically unpopular group that violated the Equal Protection Clause, and Kennedy uh, uh, brought a similar understanding to bear in the context of uh, Lawrence versus Texas and rights uh, to uh, liberty. Uh, so I don't think he changed his view. Uh, Justice uh, O'Connor uh, was in the majority in Bowers, um, and she was in the majority in Lawrence, although uh, she took a different view than the majority. She would have said, we should strike down this law on the ground that it violates the Equal Protection Clause, uh, by expressing animus against a political and popular group. And she thought it unnecessary to revisit the question whether liberty in the due process clause required the court to overrule Bowers. But uh, she would be the one case of someone who, to some extent, came to a different view on the matter between 1986 and 2003. Right. So, so that, that makes the difference, uh, certainly her, her opinion. How much do you think social mores, the change of social mores impacted, uh, specifically O'Connor's thought process? I mean, the court, uh, sits in a beautiful building, but the building is not in a vacuum and the right. building is aware right. of, well, here, of the, the changing uh, mores. Significant. Powell, uh, the person I mentioned before had stated, uh, uh, around 1986, when Byers came down, that he had never met a homosexual. And he said that to a clerk who himself was gay. Um, and I think that uh, uh, gays became more visible 
in the on the moral and political landscape between 1986 and 2003. People came to view them as just like the rest of us, if you will, rather than queer others whom we had uh, whom we didn't know and uh, whom we had never met. Um, and I think that uh, Kennedy's and O'Connor's life experiences. Um, were uh, certainly somewhat different in that respect than Powell's had been as of 1986. Uh, so I do think that enabled the court in um, uh, Lawrence to see the analogy between the rights of straights to engage in intimate sexual association sure. on the one hand and the rights of gays and lesbians to do so. The court in Bowers had just said, well, there's just no connection, no similarity, no resemblance between those two things whereas the court of Lawrence said there's a close analogy between those two things. Uh, and let me also say this. I do think that the court in Bowers took a, broadly speaking, originalist approach to constitutional interpretation. I think the court in Lawrence took an approach that accords with what we in our book call the philosophic approach. That is, the court in Lawrence viewed our commitments to liberty as abstract commitments to liberty, uh, whose meaning has to be elaborated over time, um, whereas the court in Bowers thought the question of whether the word liberty embraces a right of gays and lesbians to engage in uh, 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 intimate sexual association, they thought that was a question of what was the original meaning of the word liberty in 1868 when the Due Process Clause was ratified, or what was the common law uh, and what was on the statute books in 1868 regarding sodomy. Uh, they thought those were the dispositive questions concerning what our commitment to liberty was, and that was a, a broadly speaking originalist approach. But by Kennedy's, by the time of Lawrence, Kennedy took the view that no, these are moral, these are abstract moral and philosophical commitments to liberty that we've got to elaborate over time, and we've got to understand our uh, uh, our uh, uh, commitments as evolving over time in light of an evolving consensus concerning what liberty means. Thank you very much, Professor. The, the book is Constitutional Interpretation, The Basic Questions, uh, authored by Soterios Barber of Notre Dame and uh, Professor James Fleming, who have been speaking with today. Uh, the book published by Oxford University Press uh, is available through Oxford University Press, also available through Amazon.com and uh, possibly at your local bookstore. Professor Fleming, thanks very much for being our guest uh, on this uh, Boston University podcast. And uh, thanks to all of you, our listeners. Uh, until the next time, uh, this is Dan Ray. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.